Welcome to Sales in the Subscription Economy, Season 1, Episode 15. I'm Amanda Northcutt of SubscriptionCoach.com, and my guest today is Cliff Unger. Cliff oversees global sales and business development at Core Software, having spent more than 20 years at various hardware and software organizations. He graduated from the Eller School of Business at the University of Arizona and has been passionate about sales since quite an early age. Cliff's been fortunate to spend time at organizations at various stages of growth and scale, including well-known Denver companies like ReadyTalk and Cloud Elements, and recently at Envision App, a leader in UX design and prototyping. Cliff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Amanda. It is a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you. We are excited for you to share some sales wisdom with us today. And with that, let's dive into the 12 questions. First up, tell us a little bit more about your sales career, where you've been, how you got to where you are now, and of course, a bit about core software. Uh, I would love to. Um, I'll talk hopefully more about core software than about myself. <laughs> but uh, from a sales career perspective, my, my, my interest in sales actually started uh, when I was quite young. My parents were entrepreneurs. Um, going back to when I was super young, I, I come from New York, and um, my father owned a catering hall in Brooklyn, of all things. He was in the food business uh, by way of his family business for years and years and years. And when I was about five, um, he, at the time, this is the mid-70s, I'll share my age here a little bit, or late 70s, I think, um, I'll save a couple years. Uh, he made the decision to get into electronics. Back in the day, it was sort of CB radios and that sort of thing, if you can imagine. And uh, made the decision to move across the country. Uh, my family and I relocated when I was five to Las Vegas, Nevada. And my dad bought into a consumer electronics company, which was CB radios, uh, ham radios, car stereos, um, and then kind of grew that business, was the first cellular telephone dealer in the city of Las Vegas um, in like 1985, I think. So always was really scrappy, entrepreneurial. And I had an opportunity to just start to learn about, in this case, it was retail, but learn about sort of the art of sales, just watching his business sort of flourish and um, and being really crafty about the types of industries and how he grew the business and all that sort of thing. Uh, worked for him in high school, um, you know, selling cellular telephones uh, over the Christmas holiday uh, when there was still a lot of, you know, a fair amount of money to be made in, in that business. And um, that's sort of what piqued my interest in truly, you know, kind of building a career in sales. Mm. Um, ended up going to school, um, studied marketing and entrepreneurship at Arizona, um, and then had the good fortune of being hired um, by a hiring manager that really sort of took a gamble on me for my first job out of school. Um, I was hired into an enterprise selling role. And this is back in the day before there was really that bifurcation of roles. So the salesperson sort of did it all, all the business development, all the prospecting, all the appointment setting, getting in front of the customer, putting together quotes, closing the deal, all those things that were involved were kind of one person back in the day. Um, and from there, it just has been a passion of mine to not only sell, but build sales teams, help develop younger sales folks, all that sort of thing. Um, I will share something that's a little bit unique. I think my path has been a little bit different in getting into software or subscription SaaS um, in particular, mm -hmm. is, is most of my, my history until about nine years or so ago was in hardware. So I was working in the IT space, selling into the data center, um, in the hardware universe, spent a few years at Belkin um, in their commercial business selling um, structured cable and kind of the whole the breadth of products that they sell into commercial IT, but deliberately made the move to software, just really intrigued by all the interesting things that software brought to the table. The concept of 
recurring relationships and everything that goes along with that was uh, was most intriguing to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to share a little bit about CORE, uh, where, where I've landed now with the great team that I work with today. Um, been on board here for about nine months. Um, CORE uh, specializes in the sports and entertainment industry. And really we help our customers uh, by managing their ticketing sales, sponsorship sales, data analytics um, and insights, um, and really help them manage their commitments to their consumers, which are the fans or, or ticket holders, um, and to their partners, uh, the folks that invest uh, on the brand side of things in, in brand sponsorship, um, all the advertising dollars that go into major league sports and events and entertainment, um, by helping them create efficiencies, you know, really improving their analytics, um, and serve up to their sales teams, really purpose-built solutions that help them do their job better. Mm, very cool. I'm definitely interested in, in diving into that a little bit more, um, especially with regard to, you know, the landscape we find ourselves in with uh, no collegiate or professional sports. Sports right is an interesting place to be right now. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Well, let's uh, keep plugging away here and we'll come back to that in just a minute. Yeah. What sources do you rely on to stay up to date on the sales and sales management profession? Uh, pretty diverse, I'd like to think. Um, the first I will share is I find tremendous value in um, my network, um, leveraging um, even some of the folks that have been on, on your podcast before who have become close friends of mine through involvement in things like the Enterprise Sales Forum, um, which we, we previously had a chapter here in Denver that I was fortunate enough to sort of co-manage with someone else here in town. Um, involvement in things like Revenue Collective, which is uh, you know a consortium of sales and marketing leaders. Just the access to those folks, folks that are either dealing with the things you're dealing with or have dealt with them in the past. Um, it's great to, it's great to compare notes and really engage with folks that are either facing the same challenges or have faced them um, and really kind of help one other, you know, uh, leverage the network to, to solve the problem of the day, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, there are other areas that I spend time to try and keep myself apprised of, of you know, sort of what's the latest and greatest. Um, a big fan of Tim Ferriss's podcast. Um, that's probably a pretty popular response, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, it's been around for years, very popular. Mm -hmm. And then I spend um, a requisite amount of time on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, not surprisingly, um, looking at across from, from a sales perspective, really looking at kind of the, the most common voices that folks are familiar with, right? Barrows, Ian Arino, folks like Jim Keenan. Um, and then I follow a handful of organizations as well, Sales Loft being one of those. Uh, the folks at Gainsight, though they're primarily focused on customer success, um, really valuable content. I think they've got a really good pulse on things. Um, spend some time, you know, with all the content that Saster makes available. Um, and then find a ton of value in, in what the folks at Sales for Life, a group in Toronto, puts out um, with regard to social selling and kind of moderate engagement, if you will. Oh, cool. Okay. I haven't heard about Sales for Life before out of Toronto, but I'll definitely look them up and uh, yeah, include them on guys. the show notes. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Um, that's the gist. I mean, it's, it's balancing, I think, which a lot of folks have, how do you find time for enriching sort of your own toolkit while right. you're running a business and leading a team? Um, so I do my best is what I'd say. Yeah. Aren't we all just trying to do our best? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's fair. Those are fantastic resources, all of them. Um, okay. What about all time favorite business books? All-time favorite business books. Uh, you know, one that comes to mind for me is actually, I don't know if folks would categorize it as a business book, but it's actually a really quick read. Um, it's To Sell as Human by Daniel Pink. 
Yes. Um, this book I found really, really valuable in breaking down um, some of the perceptions that folks have about the sales um, career path and kind of salespeople in general. Um, I found this book really valuable to use with my team when I was responsible for customer success and there's or, and, and account management teams where those folks oftentimes don't want to be thought of as quote unquote salespeople because mm -hmm. they're really predicated on being advocates for their customer and the concept of trying to sell somebody something doesn't feel like you're being an advocate. Right. To sell as human, um, I think breaks down some of those misconceptions and, and really the premise is that every single one of us is in a selling job whether you're in management or you're in finance or you're in a product organization, you are always selling in a commercial environment. You're either selling your idea or you're selling an investment you wanna make or you're selling a different way of doing things. And so I've really found that, that book to be pretty valuable, especially for folks that are younger in their career um, or earlier in their career, I should say, um, to really kind of help them understand the kind of the concept of selling and it's not exclusively a transaction between a customer and a company. Um, a book that somebody shared with me years ago when I got into one of my first sort of large scale leadership roles is a book called The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. It's years old now. I think I got it in around 2010. It's probably a couple of years old at that point, mm -hmm. but really good, especially for first time leaders to really sink their teeth into how to establish uh, their presence, how to kind of, you know, um, create a baseline for how they're going to lead, manage, run a team kind of thing. So that's one. Um, with regard to sort of the subscription economy, I think from impossible to inevitable by Aaron Ross, especially for folks just getting into SaaS or software sales, that extremely valuable. Um, and then a handful of other ones come to mind. Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, um, for anyone that hasn't read that, mm -hmm. highly recommend. Uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott's a great one. And I just started two new ones. One is Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger yeah. um, from his time at Disney. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one that one of my former bosses turned me on to, which is called Nine Lies About Work. I haven't sunk my teeth into that one yet, uh, but I think it's all, it, it's sort of the concept of the reality of work versus, versus sort of the shiny image. And how as a leader to kind of navigate that and make sure that you're leading your team in the right way and, and sort of the reality of what, you know, kind of a typical business environment looks like. Awesome. Yeah, those are fantastic recommendations. Thank you very much, Cliff, for that. Uh, yeah. any, anything else or ready to move on? Oh, we can move on. Cool. Um, I'm particularly interested in your answer to this question because of your kind of varied background when, with uh, hardware to software. But have you found running a sales team in a recurring revenue organization different than that of a one-time transactional sale? Why or why not? Yeah, I, it's funny you should ask that. I think you alluded to that. Um, the first part of my career, as I shared a little bit earlier, was primarily in the hardware space. Um, and even that's evolved to, to where it is today. But, but back then, it was um, sort of the concept. It was a negative, to put it this way, but for illustrative purposes, it was the concept of sort of shipping boxes. So, um, you know, I was primarily selling into the data center and then, you know, during my time at Belkin, selling into the commercial channel but you were selling tangible goods and your revenue was tracked on the number of shipments that went out the door. What volume did you, did you stock into the channel? The concept of sort of sell to and sell through um, and kind of those moving parts are really what you manage the business to. Mm -hmm. um, there was a very, very close tie to the margins of a product and what your profitability looked like and what, um, and, 
And rather than think of things like acquisition costs, the way that we do in software or subscription revenue, mm-hmm. uh, it was purely the, the concept of like marketing spend and total sales spend, right? But it wasn't thought of the same way in that you need to think of um, what it costs you to acquire a customer and then kind of the lifetime value of that customer. Yeah. And I actually got pushed back on, um, on the, exactly this particular question um, in my first role in a subscription-based business when I you know, was in the running for taking on a leadership role in that business. It, it worked out and, and I took that role um, as when I uh, went to work for ReadyTalk here in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a very interesting question to answer then. I think the short version uh, answer is yes and no. I have found it different. Uh, the no part is, I think, the art or the, the, the balance of science and art that go into being a selling professional is very much the same. And it really doesn't matter what you're selling uh, as long as you're focused on business outcomes and the path to get your customer there. So mm-hmm. whether it is you know, building a new facility and you're selling heavy equipment or you're selling cabling or hardware in to get a company set up and off the ground, they obviously have certain business outcomes uh, that they're looking for. Um, or you're, if you're selling software, much like we do at, at Core, um, what are the business outcomes that that customer needs to, um, uh, needs to attain? And I think there's been a huge transition, even over the course of the last couple of years, um, from a, from a best-in-class standpoint of, of selling organizations moving further and further and further away from feature selling for sure. I think there's even the idea of starting to move away even from benefit selling and sort of selling to the Nirvana state or that business outcome. I mean, benefits sure help help a customer, uh, but I continually push back on my team when we get in that bad habit of talking about benefits as to what is the outcome that that delivers for a customer. It's right. great that our software does X, Y, Z. It's great that X, Y, Z helps you do the following, but what is the impact to your business? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, it, it's how we can impact somebody's business that, that really matters. So yes, there is nuance in the revenue and the modeling and the future value concepts and customer value, et cetera. Um, but I think a selling engagement by and large is, is fairly similar regardless of, of what you're selling. Cool. Yeah. If you're focused on outcomes and bringing the value and what, you know, changes in the bottom line for your customer. Yeah. That's the best kind of sales. So regardless of, of what yeah. you're selling or who you're selling to, that's a fantastic point, Cliff. All right. Absolutely. Here's a, the interesting question since you're in sports right now. Um, what changes to your projections, strategy, and sales tactics have you guys made in light of the economic challenges brought on by COVID-19? That is a zinger, uh, but very relevant. So I appreciate you asking that one. Uh, you're right. A, a good portion of our business is predicated on our relationships with major league sports teams. It's sort of how core uh, has grown over the course of the last 10, 12 years. Uh, core originally uh, back in its infancy, um, when the two gentlemen that founded it kind of created the company was a boutique software company. And they created, you know, singular solutions sort of built to customer specifications to solve problems. They found their way into working with you know, one major league sports organization and then a second, and then realized there was a major problem to solve and ultimately then pivoted and turned it into a platform and sold it as SaaS. Mm. Um, in today's world, there is definitely a unique set of challenges. What's interesting for us, we are considered sort of a core C-O-R-E um, need of many, if not all of our customers. But at the same time, 
a number of our customers are having some pretty painful challenges right now. Uh, so the dialogue has certainly changed. We are trying to balance being a really good partner when we have to have tough conversations about things like renewals or receivables or that sort of thing um, with still trying to hold our customers accountable to their end of the partnership. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, some of those conversations have got gotten a little bit difficult to have. That said, um, in very negligible ways, have we actually seen our churn numbers be impacted? So that is, you know, my hat's off to the team, um, the customer success team, our renewals team, um, you know, the the entire side of the organization that's responsible for that part. Um, But it has forced us to start looking at things we may not have previously looked at, right? Like um, daily and weekly receivables updates and understanding what renewals we have forthcoming and making that almost a conversation across the entire executive team so that we can be supportive and kind of, you know, divide and conquer and make sure we're engaged with the right customers. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of been a double-edged sword for us. I would say forecasting new business right now has become more difficult than usual. So for myself and my team, um, there's, there's kind of this challenge of creating the type of accountability we'd normally create with a prospect of trying to do has the partnership or, you know, mutual action plans to get things across the line. But I think we're in an environment now where if something slips a quarter, um, we don't hit a specific number. We need to be a little more understanding of that because we are buying for some resources that are becoming um, even more challenging to get a hold of. What I would say that it's working for us um, is just doubling down on our position as subject matter experts. We, as a market share leader in what we do, we have a unique perspective. We work across so many different organizations and across all of the major leagues and internationally um, across, you know, most major league sports. Um, We have a unique position where we can try to uh, uh, add a little bit more and try and be a little more creative and try and help folks solve some of their challenges um, as best that we can. Yeah, I mean, you guys are in such a unique position to do so. And it seems like a fantastic time for you guys to come in as, as subject matter experts um, and, you know, kind of that voice of authority and help both, you know, of course, existing customers, but prospects as well. That seems like a fantastic way to fill your pipeline as, you know, by being a helpful partner while everybody's going through an incredibly difficult time. Um, and in our pre-interview, you were also sharing with me a little bit about how uh, core software customers are having a little bit of an advantage right now because they have so much data on hand that they can go to, you know, their partners and sponsors and have conversations with accurate numbers and information in front of them at the drop of a hat. Whereas those who don't have that information are kind of a a disadvantage. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. What we have seen is for lack of a better way to put it, they're sort of the haves and the have nots. And that's not meant to be a disservice to any, you know, any, any of our target customers that aren't core customers by any stretch. But we've, it's been great on the one hand. We have been able to see firsthand um, unfortunate circumstances, but we've been able to see firsthand how our solutions and our platform provide immediate value for those of our customers that use certain aspects of, of the platform. So for those that aren't familiar, there's sort of, I'll give a little bit of background. There's, there's this concept of, of rights holders and brands in, in the sporting industry. The rights holders being those folks like the teams or the properties, those people that have 
um, marketing assets to sell. So if you think about, you know, your local sports team, either the jersey patch or the LED screen or even things like stadium naming rights or signage on the concourse or, um, you know, at the Pepsi Center here, there's a blimp that flies around um, during breaks in the game and drops gift certificates. All of those things essentially are for sale. That's kind of the way the partnership or sponsorship um, uh, industry works. And so on the one hand, you have rights holders, the folks that hold the rights to those, like the team. On the other side, you have the brand. So whether it's Pepsi-Cola or Wells Fargo or in Denver as an example, DeVita, um, those are the folks that invest in buying those assets so that they can get their logo, their message, um, you know, their presence displayed at a game, in an advertisement, et cetera. I share that background because one of the really interesting and rewarding things we've seen is that those customers that use our solutions to help them manage that entire value chain between uh, you know, themselves as right hold, rights holders or even on the brand side, you know, we've got customers on that side as well, but that relationship between rights holders and brands have really been served well with the ability to quickly and accurately assess all of the things that are built into contracts or those relationships, understand for the number of games that have been played before gameplay stopped, all of the things that have been what in our industry is called activated. So when somebody's logo gets displayed where they paid for it to be displayed as an example, that's called an activation. They very quickly and, and literally in a matter of minutes, if not maybe an hour or two, been able to collect, aggregate, and then understand exactly what that looks like across the dozens or hundreds of different relationships they have where those folks that don't leverage something like what we do, um, we've had some new conversations start. That's great from a pipeline standpoint, but they have found themselves really behind the eight ball and spending hours and hours, if not honestly days and weeks, trying to aggregate their Excel spreadsheets or the Google docs that they use or all the one-off ways that they sort of manage that piece of their business mm -hmm. and have definitely been at a disadvantage. Um, so it's great that we have opportunities to start new conversations. It's unfortunate that those are folks that are now realizing the value of that sort of thing and can't really take much advantage of it today. Um, but hopefully we have more conversations like one we had a couple weeks ago, which was, I've just gone to my executive team, you know, this is for someone that's in cycle with us. I've just gone to my executive team and explained to them that this is exactly the reason we need something like core. And so I'm pushing to make sure that we don't make this mistake again. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, talk about outcomes, how much better to go to a sponsor partner and have the data in front of you and have, you know, a civil educated <laughs> data driven conversation. Um, I can just imagine how much easier you're making your customers lives in a very, very difficult time. So talk about, you know, outcomes. Um, what a fantastic service you guys are providing. And like I was telling you again, before we hit record, um, I have a degree in sport management. I spent 10 years in a subscription sports area in collegiate sports. And um, this is just such a fascinating piece of software. So forgive the like nerding out on that. But um, I love it. you guys are providing such a valuable service that's been a much needed hole in the marketplace. And I hope you're able to go in as the world starts spinning again and, um, you know, make a fantastic re-entry into the market because of what you've been able to do for your customers uh, during a difficult time. So thanks. Cliff, Thank for you for that, Amanda. Yeah. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right. What's your best advice for sales teams competing in the subscription economy right now, given, you know, the current economic situation? This one's pretty simple. I think number one, be creative. Um, number two, be creative. 
Um, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but I, I just really think about your engagements in terms of partnership, mm. not as we often probably overuse that term somewhat cliche, but really in the truest sense of the word, um, being a partner, being a, being a giver, I think is more important now than ever. And I think for those folks that do that, um, they're going to be okay. I think for folks that are purely focused on the bottom line that are really driving maybe in an unhealthy way, their teams, their conversations, their deals to just get them done. That's putting probably well, it for sure is putting undue stress on what are tough, tough situations right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and be empathetic to the person on the other end of that commercial relationship. Um, that's my best advice. It's not rocket science. Um, the reason I shared, you know, number one, be creative, number two, be creative. We are doing that where necessary um, to help our uh, potential new customers be successful. Whether it is being creative on how we structure deals or what other services we can do to help them. I mean, keep in mind, in, in major league sports, the, the significance of the impact for these, these organizations that haven't been able to play games, yeah. or even when they come back playing games without fans and there's a ton of research that's been out there um you know in the press and from some of the analysts but but the amount of revenue that those teams forego even by playing one game without fans in the stands and think about it it's not just the ticket sale it's the food and beverage sales mm -hmm. that that fan's going to consume merchandise, over the course of the three yeah. hours they sit there it's the merchandise it's mm -hmm. parking fees it's there's so much else that go into it we are just trying to be empathetic and be as good a partner as we can. And we're doing that in really creative ways. Mm, I like that a lot. And a lot of, a lot of my guests have, you know, kind of echoed that sentiment of, of course, being uh, empathetic, but more specifically, I like the notion of being a giver, um, both internally within your organization, people are at home, they're struggling, we're all in new different situations, mental health is a major issue right now, kids running in on Zoom uh, calls is a major <laughs> issue, yeah. you know, um, now school is out, and so we have no structured activities, but kids at home. Uh, so I, I like that. And, you know, what can I do for you? Not what can you do for me? You know, I think if you're approaching your conversations with anyone um, with that sort of mindset, I think you'll, you'll go a lot farther, uh, both in business and in life. So I appreciate you saying that. Sure. All right. Let's talk a little bit about cross-departmental communication. How is that handled at core software? For instance, how intertwined is sales with product marketing and customer success? That is a very relevant topic for us um, and a great question. We are, we're relatively small. Uh, we've got, you know, a handful of offices. We're headquartered in New York, um, but we have a fairly significant presence here in Denver. And then our largest office is actually in Vancouver, which is where the company was originally founded. Oh. Uh, we've got some folks in Australia and we also have some folks in, uh, in the UK as well. Uh, but because we're relatively small, there's quite a bit of natural fluidity, I would say. The information, those small pockets of conversations can still take place. Um, I used to call them the hallway conversations, but now that we're more and more distributed, they're probably not hallway conversations. They're, you know, probably forward slash Zoom in a Slack channel kind of conversation <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that just naturally happen. Um, but th that said, you know, there's research on kind of the, the tribal size, and I don't recall who exactly did the research. There's been a couple books written on it that when a company gets to around the 140 or 150 employee size, that natural communication starts to break down and, and, and 
microcosms of groups only function at certain levels. And then you kind of get into these fiefdoms or silos or that sort of stuff that big, big companies sometimes struggle with. Um, we are doing our best to ensure that we don't end up there. Um, and it's something we're working through so that as we scale, we don't lose that natural connective tissue, right? Yeah. Uh, I've got sales reps on my team that have been here for three or four years. And when they got here, um, you know, they literally sat like right next to our head of product. And they could lean over and, and share some product feedback or ask a question while they're on a call and, and things just kind of happen that way, mm -hmm. but that's not scalable. And so what we're working on right now is really understanding how to create the right level of healthy tension. And the idea is how do we increase healthy tension um, in a way that it creates accountability, um, helps us you know, make the best possible decisions, um, doesn't slow down the business, but still respects everything that's worked here over the course of the last 12 years. And like a company that is currently in a growth phase, like any company in growth, um, those things sometimes are at odds with each other. How do you create scalability at the same time you don't get so far away that just made you so successful to get to the place that you're at today? Mm. Yeah, that's tough. Those are really, really difficult growing pains and such an important piece of the puzzle when you're running a recurring revenue organization, you know, having those departments very strategically um, aligned and everybody kind of knows, the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be interesting to kind of follow as you guys navigate those waters. Um, I have had a, a lot of guests who have had really fantastic um tips on kind of how to do that. So definitely encourage, you know, listening to those other folks. I know some of them are your buddies and digging into Revenue Collective for, for that, but what a difficult problem right now. So thanks for being honest with me about that. That's really, that's really great and helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got some really creative ideas. Um, product feedback loop is one thing we're really hyper-focused on right now mm -hmm. so that we can continue to innovate and innovate in the right areas. So we're definitely making strides there, um, but it's something that's very top of mind. Yeah, that's great. That's a good problem to tackle. That's time well spent. Um, all right. In what ways are, are individual members of the sales team held accountable for the retention of their customers? For example, is their pay structured in such a way that they're incentivized to help ensure that renewals happens? happen? Yes. Uh, so a couple of ways that, that we hold the sales team accountable. I mean, I think the typical things you would think about, right? Like baseline leading indicators. Um, we use those to predict future successes and outcomes. We think about our um, targets and our compensation plans as annual, but we measure and manage them quarterly. So we're you know, very much an enterprise sale. Enterprise sales sometimes tend to look a little bit lumpy. Yeah. So it would be, we would do our sales team members a disservice to hold them accountable to quarter by quarter by quarter, knowing that um, there are potentially going to be quarters where no deals happen. And then there are potentially going to be you know, uh, subsequent quarters where there's big, big dollar impacts and we take down a lot of business and, and have high, high number of bookings. Mm -hmm. um, so we use leading indicators to, to manage and kind of hold the team accountable in addition to kind of the bookings piece. Um, and for our, our variable compensation and commission. Um, and then we just measure and manage quarterly. Are you doing the right things? Um, are you making the right inputs to your individual piece of the business that we know is going to lead to the right outcomes? There's a book I read, I think I've got it on my bookshelf here. There's a book going back years now called Sales Management Simplified. And this is not rocket science, but it's the idea that 
And one part just still continues to resonate for me, which is that you can't manage salespeople to outcomes. You can't tell a salesperson, go sell more. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> but what you can manage them to are inputs. And that's the reason we use the concept of leading indicators here. Am I touching the right number of new prospects? Am I adding the right number of contacts? Am I creating the right amount of pipeline? Am I having the right number of conversations and meetings? Am I, am I putting the right amount of proposal dollars out the door, knowing what it takes and knowing your conversion metrics that indicate that we're going to be successful? And if you manage to that, I think it's a, a fair and mutually equitable way to A, maintain the trust of your sales team um, and not telling them to just go sell more, mm -hmm. um, but helping them ensure that they're doing the right things to make sure that they're personally going to be successful. With regard to the second part of your question, um, with regard to ties uh, to retention based on comp, our typical deal structure is actually three years. Okay. And so our new logo sales reps, um, while we do measure and manage what the outcomes of their new logos look like, um, by the time you get to a three-year renewal, it's likely less a reflection of the front-end sales cycle, unless we, we were horribly amiss. Um, and sold somebody something that wasn't a good fit or really got kind of their requirements or didn't do an appropriate job in discovery. Mm -hmm. And usually that's more related to over time, does our product continue to fit the needs of the customer? Are we providing the right level of service? Is our customer success team engaged at the, in the right way? So for our new logo sales reps, because our typical deal cycle or typical contracts about three years, there's less of a tie to that renewal piece because that gets pretty dissociated from yeah. the selling cycle. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think I'd be pretty upset as a salesperson if um, I passed that client off a long time ago and they didn't renew and I got penalized. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That seems wise. <laughs> cool. Um, how do you coach your sales team up on properly setting expectations for recurring revenue customers as opposed to one-time transaction customers? And this might be a little bit different since we're talking about three-year contracts, but give me your take on that. Yeah, um, I mean, the simple, the simple answer to that about coaching the sales team up on expectations um, is it is truly in the company's DNA. Um, uh, you know, being a relative newcomer to core, uh, I am continually reminded of what got us to where we are to be the market leader in what we do. And it's that this team moves mountains for our customers. Um, mm -hmm. And, and as we talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, sort of some of that connective tissue and how we make sure that healthy tension gets created and, and sales is staying aligned with product, is staying aligned with marketing, is staying aligned with engineering, is staying aligned with corporate goals. Um, the team, you know, I, I do my best to keep the team apprised of that. In our regular sales team meetings, uh, beyond just what occurs in our sales org, um, not only do we provide an, an audience for product marketing, engineering, whomever needs to come kind of engage with the sales team, which I think is super important. Um, but I also do my best to keep the team up to date on what's going on with the rest of the business and try to operate as transparently as possible so they continue to understand the big picture. Mm -hmm. And sale, even new logo salespeople um, need to understand the, the idea of like making a sale, tossing over the wall, and then it's somebody else's problem doesn't provide for long-term success for the company. And without long-term success for the company, it doesn't provide for long-term stability for any single individual in the company. And so I try to just make sure that that spirit is understood and, and put that in front of the team as much as possible. Yeah, that's a great answer. That's 
Sage advice from a seasoned sales manager. That's good. Are you guys currently in a hiring freeze? We are. Um, we are actually right now working on a set of KPIs at the management level that will indicate to us what the right milestones are and what the right timing will be for us to start investing in the business again. Um, some of that will, will tie in loose ways to what um, happens with sports, just because that's such a big part of our business. Right. Um, but we want to look at other indicators so that we don't get behind the ball from an investment standpoint. We don't want to find ourselves not investing in the right areas once we show the right strength um, to be able to go capitalize on all of the tremendous growth that we've had over the last couple of years before things kind of got a little bit sideways. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm finding that a lot of companies are, even if they are not in a hiring freeze, are kind of going back to the drawing board and um, doing a much better job of setting those scorecards with the relevant KPIs um, to figure out exactly who they should be hiring and in what roles to accomplish what task specifically. So it's just a lot less kind of willy-nilly, but um, kind of drilling down on the, the fine print there. So I think that's wise, regardless if you're in a hiring freeze or not. That's a good way to go about it. I think it will force all of us to think more critically about how we manage our business, where we make our investments, yeah. um, be a little tougher from a scrutiny standpoint on what all those expenses look like. So in a, in a backwards way, probably I think, um, at least for our organization, we will emerge with a much better understanding of our business. And that's probably true for a lot of folks. Yeah, which is a, a good outcome for a very bad situation. Yeah. Um, do you know, I know you've been there for nine months, but do you have any special sauce you can share with others on, you know, when you are hiring, how you're sourcing sales talent, how you assess for skills and cultural fit? Yes, I will share a little bit of sort of Core's DNA on that and then, and then my own um, to some degree. We, um, because of the space we're in and because of our prominence in that space, we have been very successful sourcing from within the industry. Um, there are a number of collegiate programs that specialize in sports management and sports business management. Um, so a handful of folks come our way directly from some of those programs. Mm -hmm. um, a good number of the folks on our team come from uh, uh, sports or entertainment organizations. So again, getting back to that idea of subject matter expertise, we have a uh, unique position of really being able to walk the walk. And when our teams when our salespeople, when our success folks, when our product people engage, they've done, in, in more cases than not, they've done the job of the folks that have the problems we're trying to solve. So there's a, an instant credibility there. Yeah. So we do very well with that. Um, and then for me personally, I, again, lean on, on my network. Um, uh, on occasion, have used some really, um, really uh, solid uh, recruiting organizations. I mean, you know, I think Every sales leader probably has the handful of folks that they work with when they, when they need to hire at scale. Mm -hmm. I've done that. Um, lean on other sales leaders that are in my network. Um, not every organization has the right spot for the next up and comer. And so I think when we can do our part to put good people in their next good spot, whether it's in their company or elsewhere, we all try and do that because we want to do the right thing by the people. And then from a, from a, um, you know, skills and the types of things that I look for. Natural curiosity is huge for me. Um, mm. You know, folks that want to know why the answer is the answer to a question, not just what the words are that make up the answer. Mm -hmm. um, I like to ask folks things like, what's the last book you read? What did you learn from it? Why did you pick it? Where do you go to learn, you know, things about a new industry? Really try and understand someone's level of natural curiosity. And then 
something I like to call, and I hope it's okay to share on, on the podcast, the, the give a shit quotient <laughs> or EAS, mm-hmm. um, which is really just how much does somebody give a blank? And, and I try and understand how much they're the kind of person that's going to be walking down the hall and see a piece, piece of trash on the floor. And even though it's not theirs, the person that bends down to pick it up because they care. The person that takes the extra phone call, the person that doesn't let the company off the hook when we owe the customer an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I really try and understand how people think about that and do they have that in them um, when I'm trying to hire people. That's a good one. I like the give a shit quotient. That's a new one. That's yeah. funny acronym, <laughs> but that's all right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. All right. Just two more questions. What's sure. uh, one to three pieces of advice you give other sales VPs competing in the subscription economy? And is that different than what you would have said pre COVID-19? Uh, let me come back to the second part of that. Uh, I think in a COVID-19 world that we live in today, um, now more than ever, you are competing for even more precious dollars and investments and your solution, your unique selling proposition, the outcome you are selling absolutely has to either be tied to a reduction in cost or an increase in revenue period. Mm. I think there is more scrutiny than ever. I think um, we have all had the probably luck or good fortune um, of, of getting the occasional deal done, creating the occasional partnership um, on a business case that maybe wasn't as locked tight as it should have been. And you got a really good champion and they were able to identify, you know, a supporting uh, economic buyer that was willing to make an investment. And I think that was okay when dollars were easier to come by. But now that everybody, much like I shared, you know, about our business where we're applying more scrutiny to where we spend, we'll be better for it by having a better understanding of our business, but everybody is doing that. Mm-hmm. You absolutely have to be tied to either an increase in, in uh, profitability or revenue or a reduction in cost. And you really, really need to tie your solutions to business outcomes um, that are tangible. Yes. Um, I would be sure your success is closely aligned with your customer success, you know, at a product level, at a company level, at a team level, um, I know a lot of folks are really dialing up their customer success engagement. I think that is key um, because in a subscription sales model, there is such a heavy investment up front. Um, you need to make sure that what you're selling is going to be sticky because lifetime value is paramount in a yeah. subscription world. Um, yeah. We all know that. And uh, it is probably more important now not to take down the easy dollars um, because of the sensitivity on spend, um, or folks, you know, are likely going to pay for that in the long term. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. Yep. All right. Last question. I'm a firm believer that sales makes the world go round and we have a tremendous responsibility as salespeople to get the economy moving again. How can we speed up that process? Fierce tenacity. Fierce tenacity. Um, there are, we have headwinds like we have not had in some time. I think the last downturn, kind of the, you know, the 2008, 2009 downturn was tough for mm-hmm. salespeople. Yeah. Um, but that was predicated, I mean, that, that was a financially instigated environment. Right. Um, spending ran out, right? We were in a bubble. Um, uh, that one you could understand and almost even a little bit predict what it would take to turn that around. You could manage effectively. 
there wasn't the, the what well, it was a huge impact but from an uncertainty standpoint you could guarantee things were gonna get back to normal or just a matter of what amount of time right that that's kind of how a recession works we know that they're cyclical this is different and so as leaders um it's a really tough time right now balancing accountability with empathy um particularly as you manage your team and as your team engages prospects even holding the prospect accountable that's become you know more and more sensitive yeah. where you might align with a prospect um, to be sure you track to whatever their compelling event is or their fiscal year or their contract expiration um, there's an increased sensitivity about that so i think tenacity around those things um, uh, meaning you know encouraging and empowering your team to come back into the office the next day with a smile on their face finding ways to celebrate, this is probably what I'd say, celebrate the small victories. Mm. Um, dollars are gonna be pushed into the future. We know that in our business, many businesses are seeing that, um, you know, the type of revenue we, we would see today may likely still happen, but it may not happen today. So how do we celebrate the small victories? A great phone call, a new prospect on the line, uh, an opportunity to capture ground in an existing deal, even if it's not gonna close in your quarter, Mm -hmm. find ways to celebrate the small victories with your teams because that will help them stay engaged and pick up the phone and makes the, the next phone call. And then I shared this earlier. I think, I think, um, as sellers, salespeople, sales organizations, um, we need to be givers. We need to be selfless in working to help others. Um, and this is going to be one of those scenarios where the idea of what goes around comes around is yeah. going to be, I think really, really evident. If you do the right things by your market, if you do the right things by your prospects, I think those leaders, teams, organizations, industries are going to make out well in the future. Mm, absolutely. I think we're all learning an important lesson in delayed gratification, but I like yeah. the, the reminder that what goes around comes around. That's right. Yeah. Thank you again to Cliff Unger of Core Software for his insights and advice today. Check out the show notes to get all of Cliff's fantastic recommendations, and you can book a 30-minute exploratory call with me from there as well. I help recurring revenue businesses get it together and grow through coaching, consulting, sales team recruiting, and as a fractional executive. See you next time on Sales in the Subscription Economy.